Okay, welcome to another episode of the Safety Third Podcast. This is actually, I would call it our first real episode. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, I think so. First episode with a guest. With a guest, right? We've got a, a very special guest here. Of course, my my name is Eric Reynolds. I'm the host, and Stephen Marks is our co-host here. And our real goal here is to invite people who are kind of thought leaders on either the technological or the business side of of safety systems who are really doing things out in different industries. And today we have a, a guest whose specialty is in primarily uh, autonomy, mobility, robotics, uh, safety, uh, but has had kind of an interesting and storied career in lots of different industries as well. And I think, I think if dare I say, he's practiced safety in a dangerous way, if, if we may, if, if that makes any sense. So our guest today is Justin Croyle. Hey, Justin. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, Justin, as I said, he's uh, right now working as a uh, really senior level engineer in autonomy and mobility system safety, working on some really advanced and cool projects. Um, but I really want to focus today on a couple things. One is getting to know you, Justin, and, and what your background is and, and that sort of thing. But then the second one is really talking about uh, the question, what is functional safety? And in, in my opinion, it's a, it, it's a word that needs some marketing help. Because if you just are on the street and you hear functional safety, you don't know what it means. Uh, and it means so much. So I wanted to ha just kind of pick your brain, hear your thoughts on, on what that means. And, and I guess we can go from there. So that, Steven, does that sound good to you? That sounds good. Let's do it. All right, cool. So I guess, Justin, what I'd like to do first is talk about how you got where you are today. So I guess, um, you know, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Um, how'd you get into this world of, of safety? So, yeah, thanks. Um, I was born in Spokane, Washington. And, um, you know, when I was young, I moved from eastern Washington out to western Washington. And that's kind of where I did a lot of my growing up. Um, ended up going to school at uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University down in Arizona. So um, that's where I was pursuing my first um, career idea, which was to become a professional pilot. And, uh, um, you know, like everything I plan, there's twists and turns in where you go in life. And uh, I ended up, while I was at that school, um, getting a master's degree in safety. And that's kind of where my the safety part of my life began. Oh, that's cool. So, so first pursuing a career in aviation which again is a highly regulated highly safety focused industry but not necessarily you didn't go to college thinking i want to be a safety engineer I guess. no that's right yeah so um really what happened is uh, i wanted to get into the airlines and um due to regulatory changes and that re related to kind of the retirement age um, of professional pilots there was a glut of very experienced pilots in the industry so i had to figure out a way to ride out a couple years until I could get into the industry. So I looked at what programs were available to get a master's and my uh, school had just started a safety science program. And so I decided to just stay where I was at and get into safety because it was kind of maybe the convenient thing to do at the time. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, I guess just uh, interesting aside. So you're, you are a commercial pilot then. Yes, sir. Yeah. And you're still, you keep up your, qualifications and ratings and all that stuff or 
Well, I'm not current right now, but um, the nice thing about the license, kind of like a driver's license, is once you get it, um, you get to keep it for life unless you prove that you're no longer safe to fly. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I've got a, you know, just a single engine commercial instrument land um, rating. Mm -hmm. And you have not yet proven that you're unsafe to fly, I guess is what you're saying. <laughs> Which is why I don't not fly yet. very often anymore, right? Not yet is the key word there, right? Yeah, not, not yet, not yet. Okay, so uh, so you come out of college, uh, you finished your master's degree um, in safety, uh, and then did you, did you go into the airlines? Did you go into flying commercially, or did you go into other work at that time? So I was in the application process for the U.S. Border Patrol, and I wanted to fly for them. And that's kind of why I've got the license that I've got. Um, if you've got a single in engine instrument um, commercial license, Border Patrol can take you, run you through their flight school, and you can end up um, either flying helicopters or small reconnaissance aircraft, you know, um, looking for anything from illegal border crossings, drug interdiction, all that kind of stuff. So that was my original plan. Um, the government had a big backlog at the time on um, background checks to get your top secret clearance. So I was waiting for that. And I was almost at the one year mark when um, one of the members of my thesis committee um, gave me a call and said I might be getting a call from uh, a company that deals in military defense contracts. And uh, the job was for safety and I, would, I could interview with them. So basically I took the interview, um, got a job offer, and uh, that's how I kind of made the, the change from intending to fly for a living to um, kind of what was my first job in system safety, um, working in space systems. Wow, wow. So I, I don't think I, I knew that, that. So when you were training, you weren't training to be an airline pilot. You were training to be a Border Patrol pilot doing what I would call not only flying, which is mission critical in itself, but doing mission critical missions i guess you're talking about law enforcement activities and other probably anti-terrorism type stuff that, that was your that was your goal originally yeah i wanted to have, do something that was exciting and kind of had this tactical element to it and you know flying in the airlines is um exciting as, as much as it is but um low terrain um flight where you're doing you know visual flight rules a, you know, 50 feet over the ground, flying a couple hundred miles an hour. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Wow. Wow. Well, that's cool. I, I, I didn't know that about you. That's super. So, um, okay, so you move on to go to work with the defense contractor, and you're working space systems, you said, right? Um, and yep. can, can you talk any about what that work was like or what, what kind of things you were involved in? Or? So, you know, a lot of the programs I worked on were classified, but um, – you know, in general, I was doing what you'd consider to be classic system safety. So when you're looking at safety and understanding, you know, what systems need safety related design, I was looking at, uh, you know, um, do we have hydraulic systems, pneumatic systems, pressure vessels, um, things like that, um, all these different hazardous sources that you could have inside of a spacecraft. And I was working alongside engineers to ensure that those hazards um, were never released in a way that could harm people. Um, but because these were, again, classified and, uh, you know, um, military-based programs, it wasn't really a standards-based approach. It was more you get some engineers together in a room and come up with something that's a practical approach to mitigating risk. And that was kind of a good way for me to get into the industry, I think, think about things practically and, and uh, tangibly. 
Yeah, kind of starting off with the risk-based approach rather than, you know, I guess if you're doing space systems, a lot of things aren't, it's not that people have done it millions of times before and there's not an established way to do it necessarily, maybe. maybe yeah. So there's a need. Can I, can I take an aside uh, real quick and, oh, go ahead, Susan. Uh, Justin, I was just going to ask if you could explain to people the difference between a risk-based approach and a standards-based approach. I don't know if people uh, may may know the difference. Sure, yeah. So that's what I was going to bring into light was the fact that, you know, when you use a risk-based approach, you basically identify what hazards and risks could be experienced um, due to the design of, of a system. And you go through those and you determine whether those risks are mitigated or controlled in any way or not and if they are controlled are they controlled to a sufficient level for them to be considered safe and so it's very much a design approach um, mentality that um, you use for risk based in my opinion whereas a standards-based approach is you know you've got a kind of a regulated industry and rather than looking at the specific design to start you're looking at what are the requirements that some government standard um, requires of, of this product type and um, you kind of take that as the initial approach where you're checking the requirements against your, your design. Awesome. That kind of and, hit it, Steven. Yeah, yeah. And, and you said you got a master's degree in safety engineering. I'm kind of curious at what approach was taught to you in school, um, both of them, one of them, uh, or, or did you just kind of learn as you go? Well, my degree technically is a science degree, and it's actually kind of cool because um, it's a safety generalist degree. So I did study formal system safety. I had system safety classes in, in, as a part of the degree. But I also studied everything from industrial ventilation to aircraft accident investigation um, to epidemiology in, in the, the degree program. So when we were looking at the mitigation of risk in our system safety classes, um, it was more of an overview that teaches you how uh, you could approach a problem like that, but didn't necessarily dig into the details of, uh, you know, what are the standards and how could you take a standards-based approach. It was just a general, if you know what your risks are, here's how they can be mitigated through design. I see. Okay. So kind of a best of both worlds, mitigating risk through design um, and not necessarily getting into the nitty-gritty of, of each government-based standard. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So I, I you know, um, I wanted to bring up Justin. So you said your first, I'll call it engineering job out of your graduate school was uh, working in the space industry. And my first, um, I'll call it engineering job was also related to space as well. And I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, but it, it inadvertently pointed me towards working in safety. And I didn't I didn't set out to do so at the time. Uh, I was an undergrad aero engineering major at Texas A&M, and I was really just looking to do cool stuff because I think that's what you're trying to do when you're a young engineer is you're into it for what can we make that's cool and that maybe nobody's ever done before. So somehow I got connected through a professor or something like that uh, at the university to do this um, NASA internship, and it, was, <clears throat> it wasn't a like go to – Langley or Johnson or Kennedy Space Center and like a like that level it was they had all these satellite um, research centers at different universities so I was actually working on the campus um, but we were working on some um, uh, 
something called StarNav, which was basically, at the time, a, a pretty advanced uh, camera system that had two different fields of view that it would then fuse into one, and it would look out at constellations and do celestial navigation, but for a spacecraft rather than for a boat or an airplane, right? So if, if the spacecraft is out in... Uh, in orbit, and it needs to know its particular attitude or location, this uh, StarNav would look out, take two orthogonal fields of view, integrate them into one, and then based on that, it could identify the attitude of the spacecraft. So it was kind of a, a cool thing, and I felt like a, a big, cool, interesting engineer working on this project, and I was doing you know, pretty low-level stuff, some finite element analysis and other things like that. Um, but it was really inspiring to me as my first real job. And so I finished that year-long internship, and then I left and joined the Air Force and was doing other things. And then I found out from some people I was working with that it was going to actually fly on space shuttle as a student payload mission on one of them. And I thought, wow, this is a, a cool thing. And wouldn't you know it, which, which shuttle mission do you think it flew on, Justin? Uh, Columbia? Yeah, the the, yeah. La the last one really, and man, yeah. talk about a gut punch for a young engineer, right? To to work and design and work on helping to design this thing, small part in it, right? But then the first mission that it goes on, you realize it's not just about how cool of a thing can we build, because people lost their lives on that mission. Now it wasn't anything related to what Starnav was doing, but man, it just kind of reoriented as a 22-year-old engineer, just kind of reoriented my mind to what the real world's about and what the responsibility engineers have to design and deploy ethical systems that are that we understand the risks about and we decide as a society that they're worth it, right, uh, to go forward. So anyway, that's my aside. Um, talking a, a, a little a little rude for me to talk about myself when I have a guest on. So so you're working in space systems uh, and you're working on super cool secret classified programs. And how long did you do that for? So I was working on space systems for probably six or seven years. I'd say six years actually, yeah. So got to do a lot of really interesting uh, classified programs and got to go through the whole um, launch site cycle and basically take projects from cradle to grave there where um, you get to see it from the initial integration all the way through launch. So it was really pretty fun. That's cool. And then after that, um, I guess you worked there for a while and then you transitioned into uh, working in the role you're in now or different different place, different industry. What, what happened after that? So I kind of left space and worked briefly in missile systems for a while and Got to do um, some of some of like the missile defense systems for some um, foreign countries' uh, militaries, and did some targets work um, back here in the in the states. And then uh, from there, I transitioned over briefly into um, wheeled vehicles, and did a little bit of um, you know prototype kind of development for um, autonomous heavy military trucks, and. Uh, that was kind of the the last project I did that was uh, military focused. Oh, so w was this about the time that they were running all of those challenges, those DARPA type challenges and things, for navigating ground vehicles and all that sort of stuff? Is that 
Yeah, that's exactly how this program started, actually. It was one of the DARPA challenges, and basically um, it was a joint, I want to say it was a joint between the um, Army, Navy, Marines. I don't think we had Air Force um, funding. And it was uh, to take that technology, apply it to an existing vehicle. It was called AMAS, Autonomous Mobility Applique System. And it basically takes a standard military truck and uh, converts it over to have autonomous capability um, and remote um, driving capability for, you know, in-theater use. Wow, wow. And so did you guys get to a functioning working prototype with that? Or, or how far did Yeah, we go? actually had a number of them. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with, well, you probably are familiar with uh, military vehicles, but we had a, everything from, you know, your standard Humvee all the way up to um, the uh, heavy hauler, the HET, um, that pulls M1 Abrams tanks. We were towing M1 Abrams tanks uh, on a trailer autonomously through unpaved services and, you know, uneven terrain and all that kind of stuff. It was pretty good. Wow. And it, what, about what year was this? When was this? Oh, that was like 2015 to 2016. Okay, okay. So you're kind of at the – that's really at the beginning of what a lot of the – autonomous driving auto when autonomy kind of started to come into its own i guess i would say would yeah agree with it? Oh, that's cool. so it was an early exploration and sensor fusion and understanding you know when we think about safety you know and we think about control systems versus safety systems this was the um, very early in understanding how these two separate paths could be integrated into a single um, project and whatnot right Justin, was this your first uh, was this your first exposure to, or your first time working uh, as a career with autonomous systems? Uh, was this project? Yeah, that that was the first time. So, jumped in with both feet, so to speak. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I thought maybe that you'd say that at first they hired you as a driver, but then they realized that wasn't going to work, so they said do autonomy. No, I actually you're right. I I went and got my commercial driver's license while I was on that program, so. Uh, I was a driver too. Oh wow! <laughs> so you worked that program for a while, and then uh, you decided to make another change. Is that right? Yeah. So kind of decided um, to leave kind of the military contracting and defense industries and move over. Had an opportunity to move into robotics, and so that's kind of how I, I made that transition. So that, I guess a question that comes to my mind is how much alike are those two? Like how, how much is the same and how much is totally different between the work you did in ground vehicles, military defense applications, and the works you're, the work you're doing in autonomy and mobility now? So it was a really good transition for me because I was doing kind of autonomy on the military side first. And then uh, I transitioned over to kind of industrial mobile robotics and um, because you had to take that risk-based approach on military programs it trained my mind to think in a risk-based approach and when uh, I jumped into even industrial mobile robotics in that 2016 time frame there there really weren't um, solid descriptive prescriptive standards out there to guide how to build mobile robots so um, you know, taking that risk-based approach um, kind of helped that transition for me. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like it. I mean, when you think about the timeline that you're talking, so 
IEC 61508, which is kind of like the granddaddy of uh, risk-based safety standards that you know, all these other standards are now referencing. And, and it's funny how they reference it. There's usually a clause in there that says, if you have safety-related systems, you need to do 61508, right? That, that's kind of all mm -hmm. they say. So, so that only came out in its, in its, like, what I'll say, full edition in 2010. So that's published then, and you're working in 2015 in a, and, it, and it's kind of a general standard that is not, and then there's supposed to be specialized standards that are developed under that, right? So you're still working in 2015 yeah. in a time when none of those are really, if they're written, they're not widely used and accepted and people are still figuring it out. Is, is that true? Yeah, you know, and uh, there was a lot of discussion in those days about when you're controlling a mobile robot, it's driving around, even if it's not fully autonomous, it's working on a structured field. What are the appropriate standards to apply and how do you apply them? So there's a lot of discussion around the application of, you know, some form of 61508, really um, 62061 was heavily discussed because that's kind of a machinery focused standard. And the comparison of 62061 to ISO 13849, um, you know, was another discussion. And you apply one, the other both. Um, and if you do apply them, how specifically do you apply them um, to a mobile robot? So um, at the time, you know, some tailoring was done, some invention was done to kind of create a compliance picture for us that that worked. Yeah, I think that's one of the most rewarding things about working in safety is you've got these innovative areas that you're either a new technology or a new application of an existing technology or a blending of two technologies that are out there. And now it presents all new hazards that none of the existing standards are really built to address, right? And so you've got yeah. to come up with a rationale. You've got to come up with a real safety case about why the system that you're employing, the risks are managed, the risks are handled, right? So I think that's a, a real rewarding thing. Yeah, cool. and uh, Absolutely. so we heard you mention, Justin, IEC 61508, and some people may not know that, but before we dig into that, um, as we talk about uh, risk-based approaches and autonomy, can you can you just uh, talk about w what is functional safety? What is functional safety, um, and why would someone listening really care about functional safety? Oh, yeah, so, you know, part of the reason I think that there's such... Um, confusion or maybe lack of understanding about what functional safety is specifically is that people try to read the definition of functional safety in one of the standards and when they read it it doesn't really illuminate anything because it's in my opinion it's kind of sometimes written like uh standards legalistic language that doesn't really have a tangible um, meaning in my mind so when i think about um, functional safety i think about complex systems and products that are out there today maybe you've got you know, a, an, an appliance in your house, or maybe you've got an autonomous vehicle out on the road that has um, control functionality. In the case of an appliance, maybe you run something like in a blender, a blade, or, um, you know, some sort of moving part, in a, or in the case of a car, maybe it's driving down the street, you know, kind of the range from simple to complex. And um, each one of these devices has some form of control to it. And the control systems that we use today, as well as the safety systems that we use today, are electronically based. So the functional safety of a system really is using some form of electronic control to mitigate the hazards that could be realized 
from one of these um, devices or systems. Um, that's kind of the my most simplified way of thinking of it. Yeah, and so the the components then of that of any safety system, what what, what are they? Could you talk a little bit about what would make them up? Like, are there major components that you would see in a safety system, or or is it yeah simpler than that? Yeah, so I think a little bit along the lines of uh, ISO thirteen eight forty nine in this way, where everything's either got a an input or sensing element, a logical element, and an output or an actuating element, and when you're creating a safety system or you're creating a safety function um, using a safety system, for it to truly be a safety function, it's got to have all three of those elements, some sort of input or sensing, some sort of logic, computation, and some sort of output or actuation for it to truly be a safety function. Yeah, that's good. So, so going back to your two examples of the blender and the car, could you talk about how you might apply or how functional safety might apply to a blender and then how it might apply to a car sure so um yeah so the blender might be really easy to discuss because the the hazard is very apparent it's a very quickly rotating blade that's in inside of the blender and you at no time want to allow the blender's blade to be rotating while your hand is inside the blender as an example. And so if you were to create a safety function um, for that blender, you would have to say, there's gotta be some way to sense when that blender is not in a state um, that's safe for that blade to rotate. So maybe the lid's off as an example. If the lid's off the blender, maybe your hand could be inside the blender. And um, so you could create a safety function that says, if the lid's off, there's a signal that gets sent to, you know, some logical device and maybe that says, oh, um, I detect the lid is off and I prevent powering of the, the rotating blade so that no one's hand could get chopped up in the blender. It's a simple safety function. Yeah, yeah. So that'd be a good one. And then you would want to probably also put some kind of response time on that too, right? Because if, if it takes 10 seconds for you to turn off the motor... Well, then, you know, little Timmy's already got his hand down in the blender, I guess, or, or what have you, right? Or me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you'd need a – it's got to happen within a certain amount of time and within a certain context. I think that's, that's important. Okay, so that's the blender piece. And what about, what about the car piece? What would functional safety look like in the car? So car, obviously, there's um, – if you dig into the details, there's a little bit more complexity there. But at the end of the day – you know, a good example would be that you don't want your car to run into anybody or anything, right? Um, driving forward, um, as far as I, I know, there's no use case that involves a, a car on the street um, willfully impacting anything from the front. So you could end up having a safety function that includes detection of what's in front of a car while it's traveling in the forward direction. That detection um, would involve sensors that feed their inputs to some logical device that um, when fed with sensor data can make a decision about whether the area in front of the car um, that's clear is sufficient or insufficient for the car to um, complete some sort of safe action. And then that safe action could be maybe a, a, a stop or some sort of collision avoidance behavior so that in an emergency, um, the reaction of the car would prevent um, collision and harm to, to other people. Yeah, so I think that's, I think a lot of people are starting to experience 
driver aids and and you know uh, adaptive cruise control and that sort of stuff. So I think they kind of can get that you've got some sort of sensor coming back to this logic, and it's eventually going to your your brakes and your steering and all those sort of things to make the. So um, I think one thing right now what we've described is really controls engineering for mainly right. Um, mm-hmm. We've talked about what what would be different in a safety system what would be a requirement that's different in when you've got to rely on the safety system to work when timmy's hand is going in or when uh timmy runs out in front of the car right you know like what, what what's the difference between just the requirements of a regular control system and the requirements that we would levy on a safety system so i think that um there's two elements to that um the first and the easiest one to describe is the reliability of the function. Um, so you'd need your function, um, your safety function, to work with, you know, five, six, nines of reliability. Um, and you would need to, because of that, um, also have to have, you'd need to ha- um, create a function that is um, explainable, understandable, and um, in in, in a certain way, finite, so that you can um, create the boundary diagram of what is inside or outside of the safety system scope. Anything that's inside of the safety system scope needs to be fully explainable and demonstrable in terms of um, the design and in the way that you test. And then at the end of the day, there needs to be consideration of systematic faults and failures, which is that design, um, which includes hardware and software, but also um, we need to consider the the random pulse that could be introduced into hardware there as well. So um, that's where some of the the reliability calculations based upon the components used comes into play. Right. So you got you've got reliability of both like just the hardware reliability of the thing breaking or whatever, and then the the architecture is such that you don't have misses that you you get corner cases that might cause the system to not act in a in a safe way. Right. So. Yep. Okay, well, I think that's uh, that's helpful to uh, to I think a lot of folks who may be very good engineers who worked in controls or systems before may not understand that nuance of the difference between you know if you you talked about five nines of reliability right and that's where we get into things like safety integrity levels or performance levels or ASILs automotive safety integrity levels right you know that there there are ways to quantify and communicate. Um, how much trust we're putting into this safety system, right? Um, whether right. you can whether you can trust it with your life or or just with your finger, right? Like <laughs> I guess is is one way to to describe it. Right? So cool. Yeah, absolutely. So Justin, uh, as someone who builds these safety systems, what what would you say is the most challenging part of it, whether it be a, a simple struggle um, like supply chain issues um, or or a philosophical struggle of you know, how, how do you truly make something safe? Uh, can you give us some insight into some of the challenges you face with building, uh, with building uh, electric, electronic-based systems? Sure. So, you know, when I first joined um, the company and I, I started working in um, robotics, mobile robotics in general was uh, something that was kind of new and wasn't fully defined. And once it got defined, um, you know, I moved out from the mobile robotics in a structured field type application to autonomy and mobile robotics. And 
that put me back into the same spot where um, if I was to take a standards-based approach, there just weren't standards that could define the hazards to be explored and how to mitigate them. I had to take a risk-based approach. And when I, in the team and I explored that risk-based approach, there was a certain amount of invention that was just inherently required. So, you know, we had to come up with, um, you know, the, the standard that kind of governs how you do a risk assessment, ISO 12100, right? And it's um, fairly open-ended so that you can apply it to any kind of project you want. Um, that's great, but when you're trying to apply it to a certain project and get the fidelity and quality out of your risk assessment, number one, that you need, and number two, you need to be able to um, foster co-development of safety systems with maybe other projects or partners, um, you need to have some standardization there. So I think the invention um, on the risk assessment side um, was probably one of the, the first um, challenges that we encountered. And I would say that invention in general in safety right now is both a challenge and an opportunity. Um, I'll just take a little tangent to say, you know, when you get into a lot of engineering fields out there, they're very well defined. You know, I've got friends that are mechanical engineers and when you're looking at building, you know, lifting equipment, everybody knows that first from a safety perspective, you can, um, you know, put in a safety factor of two to one on um, yield and five to one on ultimate. and there's all the formulas and everything laid out for you. There's not too much from the ground up invention required to be successful there. But safety, especially functional safety, is so young and so new right now that um, in many cases, a certain amount of um, invention and um, uh, you know creative thinking is required to create a safety case around these new and um, previously uninvented products. So um, I guess my my main challenge there is also kind of what draws um, me and many people to functional safety, which is when you come a, a, into a new project, um, invention may be required. Mm. So they just the, the general groundbreakingness, uh, the ground uh, breaking uh, ability of autonomy, right? Just uh, utterly changing in, in the industry is, is the biggest challenge you would say. Yeah, it's, um, you know, um, Eric mentioned control systems earlier, and control systems are still like there's just so much going on in that that space. But even when you look at control systems versus functional safety and control systems, functional safety and control systems right now is just this big open void um, that hasn't been defined yet. There's a lot of different possibilities and where you can go in your design and your architecture and the way you implement things, and um, that's a challenge, but it's also, I think, a great opportunity, and that's what makes functional safety right now um, really pretty exciting. Mm. Very cool, very cool. Well, um, I, I, I think uh, you've kind of clearly explained, at least for me, what functional safety is. Uh, Steven, did you have any other questions? or? No, I think that's great. Okay, well, good. Well, I've been waiting this whole time. I've got a question I want to ask you, Justin. <laughs> and uh, I want you to be honest. I mean, not that you haven't been honest this whole time. I don't mean to imply that you haven't, but uh, I want you to be honest. So here's a question that I think is interesting to me and probably Stephen, probably other people are listening as well. So you're a safety engineer. Your, your job is to assess risk and to kind of give the thumbs up or thumbs down as to whether the 
risk is acceptable or not, right? So, what's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? <laughs> so, you know how, like, uh, when they, uh, you know, casinos want to make sure they have security, they usually hire somebody who um, is the opposite end of the spectrum, someone who's been trying to cheat the casino uh, as, a, as the, the, the expert in that. I think that that's kind of the closest... Uh, kind of metaphor I can use for how I ended up in safety because um, I've had a lot of uh, uh, close calls and um, bad decision making, especially in my youth. But I would say that um, probably the the number one unsafe thing that I did was um, I actually paralyzed myself from the neck down. Uh, I think it was four days before I started my master's degree in safety, um, riding a motorcycle down some Canyon roads. So um, wow. I actually showed up to the, uh, you know, when you show up to the first day of school, they kind of got a uh, an overview from the, the the program heads, and everyone sits in the in the room, and they go around the room, and they ask everybody, you know, what's your name? Tell us your name, and tell us why you are um, enrolled in a safety master's degree. And uh, I had to get carted in in a wheelchair, and my arm was in a sling. I still had my neck brace on, and uh, I. When they came to me at the back of the room, um, I just said, "Hey, my name is Justin Coyle, and I have a lot to learn about safety." And uh, the professors got <laughs> such a kick out of it; they still tell that, you know, to all the classes out there. Oh my gosh! Okay, so let me get this straight. So you're riding a motorcycle through some canyons, right? And were you were yep. you in the motorcycles and cars and racing and all that sort of stuff? Or yeah, in college especially, I had been through a, a sport bike phase, and this was kind of in the center of my sport bike phase, I guess. Yeah, so. Buddy and I were riding down, uh, you know, through some canyon roads. This was in Arizona. And, uh, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever taken air prevention training. They talk about this pinch, right? If you feel a pinch like you shouldn't be doing something, heed the pinch. Um, I hadn't taken air prevention training yet. So I had the pinch and I ignored it. I was like, you know, riding with another person who I didn't know. And I rode past the point we were supposed to turn around. But um, and we were riding probably faster than we should have been riding. And, uh, I ignored the pinch. And as we were coming around a, a tight corner, um, a boulder had basically fallen off the cliff and landed in my portion of the lane. And if I kind of leaned in farther and just tightened my turn, I would hit the motorcycle that was next to me. If I would have gone in the opposite lane, um, there's a minivan coming the other way. So I ended up having to just hit the rock and went over the handlebars into the, uh, the guardrail there. Wow. Wow. And that's what, and that paralyzed you just, but just for four days or, or, or what was the, so yeah, I had nerve, like, um, it was a little touch and go in the beginning. They knew that, um, my structure was okay, but the nerves seemed to have been detached. So I got a nerve conduction velocity specialist and, um, yeah, basically I started getting back the use of my legs within, you know, it was hours when I could start moving my toes and whatnot. And within a day or two, I could uh, move my legs as a whole. And then uh, I could move my right arm after, I don't know, three days. And then the left arm, it took a little while to come back. And I still have a little bit of numbness in my forearm from it. Wow. Wow. And so you, <coughs> I'm sorry, uh, the, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling a little bit because I can't imagine what it was like because you didn't know if anything was going to come back, right? While you're. Right. Yeah. While you're laying there, you don't you don't know, but then somehow, you said after three or four days you had your left arm or whatever back, but you still went to school. <laughs> yeah. 
You still my mom was already so mad at me for getting in the accident. I wasn't going to miss, uh, miss class. You know what oh I mean? my gosh. So now, okay. So, uh, so you know that I, uh, I teach graduate school as well too. And now I've got a perfect excuse why students sh- or perfect story to tell when students tell me they need to miss class. I'll just be like, look at this, guy. <laughs> look at this guy. So, okay. So, so, uh, you're Justin and you need to learn a lot about safety. Do you feel like you've learned a lot about safety over the years? I have, honestly, uh, I think that was probably one of my biggest, uh, safety learning experiences there, but, um, the job has helped too. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, I'm uh, glad Justin, you... oh, go sorry, ahead, Eric, go ahead. Um, I was going to ask if you find yourself still doing risky things, the further you go into safety, are you more prone to risk now or, uh, do you live a pretty moderate life? I'm old now, so, um, I don't do, I'm not as stupid as I once was, I guess. I guess that's okay, my hope. You guys should tell me. But. It's more of an age thing than a philosophy thing. Um, I want to say that I, that all of my education has helped instruct me as well, but, um, I don't know. I think probably most of it's age. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, Justin, you and I have been friends for a while. I think what characterizes your life is a, is a risk-based approach. And I, I think <laughs> people think about safety engineers a lot. They think of ultra conservative people who never want to take any risk. And I think that's a mischaracterization of most of the safety engineers that I know. And it, it's some of them actually take risks that I'm not comfortable with, right? But they their mind is calibrated to make that risk versus reward decision on things, and and so they'll do that. And and you know I find people around around me being surprised that I'm a safety engineer because I I I, I do things uh, much probably like you do, Justin. That uh, maybe you're on the little on the edge of the envelope, but it's because of the risk versus reward type of thinking. Absolutely. And you can always say I'm a professional, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's good. Well, cool. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Justin. It's been a great time having you as a first. I hope not the last time you're on the podcast and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Sounds good. And thanks for having me on. Thanks, Justin.